he was one of those 12 surfers of all time that had the million dollar deals. And then when he got dropped by Hurley, I know he was shopping around at 500K, that sort of zone. And then one of the other managers uh, said, look, he's in reality, he's a 200K surfer now. Welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson and this is a show where I interview surfers and surf riders about the recent events that have happened in the surf world. Every episode so far, there's been two interviews, but this episode, there is only one because it's a bit of a long one. I interviewed Sam McIntosh, one of the founders of Stab Magazine and the man behind much of its brilliance over the years because Sam has just written a story on Stab and his, his story is part of a series that he does annually titled the rich list and the rich list is what you'd imagine who's got the cash and these stories are nearly always the most read stories of the year which was actually surprising to me when i first heard that do we do we really all care about money that much and it's not even our money it's it's other people's but the numbers do not lie. It reminds me of a book actually that I read. Well, I only read the first couple of chapters of, but it was written by this former Google data analyst and it's called Everybody Lies. The, the entire book is, is centered around the incredible amount of data that Google collects via its search function and what this data can tell us about the human race. It's actually a really good book, or at least the first couple of chapters were... There's all kinds of surprising stats in there about sex and racism and politics. And I mean, I'll spoil it for you if you like. We're basically, we're all racist bigots and we have very little sex. That might surprise some and, and be obvious to others. The key about Google is that people tell Google things that they might not tell anybody else. Things they might not tell friends, family members, doctors, surveys. It serves as kind of digital truth serum. And when you start analyzing this data, you get a different picture than we usually get of human beings. So for example, worldwide, there are more searches for porn than weather. Uh, even though if you ask people in a survey, fewer than 20% say that they watch porn, presumably everybody says they check the weather. Numbers don't lie and the stab analytics show that we all love reading about cash and who has a lot of it. Before we get into that though, the other big story of the week was written by Jed Smith and the title of that story was the Australian government is now funding surf trips inside the program designed to return the nation to its former competitive glory. We tapped Jed to give us a little bit of a rundown of the story and what he thinks of this initiative and how one gets their hands on, on this money to go surfing I don't know, from the government. Yeah, so uh, basically the gist of what the Australian government has done here is through the Australian Institute of Sport, they've handed over a big chunk of money uh, to the HPC there, the uh, High Performance Centre up there at Casuarina on the Gold Coast. And um, the HPC are in a position now to fund the travel of uh, top-tier WQS surfers, so guys who are guys and girls who are looking as though they're going to get on the WCT in the next year. 
Uh, there's also money being allocated for the top-ranked pro junior athletes and uh, the top under-16 talent ID athletes. Um, so basically the breakdown is uh, those top guys in the in that QS bracket, like Re- your Reef Hazelwoods, et cetera, they get the opportunity to do three trips to world tour locations paid by the government. Unbelievable. There is no doubt schooner glasses shattering across the nation and cone pieces flying out of bugles at the news that the Australian government is actually paying for surfers to travel and do surf trips. Uh, Beyond that, I believe it is uh, the pro junior athletes. They get two trips anywhere and uh, the – not anywhere, actually. It's just to world tour locations only. And then the talent ID under 16s, they get one trip, um, all of which is – has to be carried out at a world tour location with the goal being to just tune them up at some of these locations like your Chopes, J-Bay, some of these pretty foreign kind of uh, wavescapes that Australian surfers don't generally get the chance to surf, I guess is the thinking. And as for why the government has chosen to chip in and, and help surfers out, you know, these this once maligned subculture, this persecuted minority within Australia historically, um, the reason they've decided to throw a bit of money at us is because, uh, you know, surfing's considered now a healthy pastime. It's, it's something the government wants people to get into uh, because, you know, a healthy country um, is a prospering country. It just means, you know, fit, fitness and health is a focus of government policy. It lessens the, the burden on the healthcare system, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just a big he- healthy living initiative, uh, basically, which has found a financial ends in the pro surfing community. Very strange. Thank you, Jadam. Brilliant as always. He's, he's always on. He's always extremely passionate, that's for sure. He was so passionate, just then it sounded like he was going to eat the microphone at one point at the start, but really fascinating stuff nonetheless. Now onto the rich list with Sam McIntosh. This story will be dropping in installments on Stab Premium. So depending on when you listen to this, they might not all be out yet, but the link will be in the description for this episode. We bounced around everywhere in this chat and we barely scratched the surface of all the really fascinating chunks of information and and tidbits that are throughout this story. Every sentence of this story tells you something you didn't know and the amount of work that Sam has put into this piece is staggering. It's, It's a fascinating read. So be sure to check it out. Plus, we, we didn't even reveal the rank of the male surfers this rich list features, 11th through to 1st. The women's rich list, uh, will be co- rich list will be coming down the track. So dive into this story, find out who won, who won the, the game of money. It's crazy reading this story because you feel like you're being, you're privy to all this information that you shouldn't be. I feel like the information that's in this story around surface salaries and their contracts with each of their sponsors is the type of information their their partners might not know. And it's like you're a fly on the wall in meetings with their accountant. 
How hard is it to come across all this information? How hard is it? It's difficult. It's really difficult. It's decades of relationships, long-term relationships, just being around these deals for a long time, knowing how they work, knowing how the bonuses work, knowing how the incentives work and just working with the same people in the same companies and being in the same space for a long time, people trust you and you just learn these things, you overhear them. And I am naturally curious to learn about these things. And so you just kind of get this laddering up of information and you kind of piece together this whole sponsorship ecosystem. And it fascinates me. It fascinates me that people can earn such good money straddling a piece of fiberglass. So there's no one way to find out this contractual information. You have to come at it from all different angles. And The easiest way is to ask someone and sometimes they tell you. And I don't want to go and blow the guys up who just tell me what their numbers are because I feel like that's, I'm kind of hanging them out to dry. But there's, there's probably 25% of people on the list who will just tell you, which is quite cool. There's other people who say, uh, hey, you missed a couple of sponsors and this is kind of my ballpark area. But yeah, it's just a, it's just a bunch of cross-checking and talking to various people and then just talking to sponsors, talking to team managers, talking to talent agents, talking to the service themselves, talking to the parents. Like there's a lot of layers. We probably spoke to 50 people to pull this story together. Wow. A lot of work. That's, some, that's actual journalism. Well, it is and it isn't. So I have a rule. I don't want to blow anyone up because I really appreciate the access. So I say the whole story is I've sort of according to Insider X, Insider X, Insider X, which are all different people. I just don't want there to be a witch hunt for these people for revealing any of these numbers or any of these facts around it. So I do keep that part out of it because I do want to keep telling these stories annually because I think they're really interesting. Yeah. And these stories are something that everyone is interested in or at the very least they cannot resist clicking on it based on what our analytics tell us. They're the most popular stories that we have. And surfers' contracts aren't public knowledge. At least prior to STAB, they were rarely reported on. What made you want to report on on this information? Well, things became more transparent when these businesses listed on the stock exchange. So once they were publicly listed, they had to be transparent about where their expenditure was. And that's when these things started to bubble up and you can kind of get a sense of where various contracts were and then you could start piecing it together and work out where it all falls. And so since then we have just kept it up. So Quicksilver, Billabong, those brands are listed. You could go and follow the paper trail. Volcom, I think for some point, at some point you could have, uh, but that's sort of where the transparency was led from. And then I had been personally close to quite a lot of deals. I was really close with Taj's deals back in the day, Kolohe's deals. And then when we sold Stab to Surfstitch, uh, 2015 maybe, yeah, 2015. And so Surfstitch were on this sort of buying rampage and they bought Surf Hardware, which is the company that owns FCS. And they said, hey, can you check out all the team deals? And I was like, what? You know I'm the media guy, right? Like, yeah, can you, we're doing the due diligence. Can you check out the team deals? And so I see Mick's deals, Julian's deals, Kolohe's, Gabriel's with Gorilla Grip. And I was like, whoa, like it was a... Uh, which is nuts to see the numbers in there, to see the royalties, to see what the base salaries were and how these guys were incentivized. So that was a real eye opener. And then once you get a sense of how the incentives work, you gotta learn about all the other brands and how, how those deals come together. Like the energy drink deals are really performance-based, podium-based, and yeah, they all have their different sort of KPIs. 
Yeah, and so you've been close to, you worked with Taj a lot on his deals and you even had your own deals as like a sponsored surfer when you were young. Sort of, yeah, very like micro deals. But like uh, I was telling this to you before, I got this deal with Gorilla Grip when I was like, I don't know, 14 or something. And I just couldn't believe the incentives. So it was all print-based incentives. It was like half page in a major surfing publication, a single page, a double page, front cover. Front cover incentive was like $1,000 or something. I was like, it sounded like all the money in the world. You got reading there on the, on the, in the details there, deep in the contract. And then interestingly, I had a, I had a deal with Arnett later on and like I had a $1,500 deal annually and they overpaid me, gave me 15,000. Really? Yeah. And just as a little sidebar story and that's how I, I could afford to publish a Taj Burroughs book of hot surfing book back in the day. No way. Mm. And so then you didn't I had have to, to give then, the money back? Yeah, I had to return the money though. But I just was, uh, just took, I just had to stagger the payments back. It just ended up being a nice little loan that they gave you. Yeah. yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, this, nation, this, the National this, Bank of Arnett. And this little, there's this lady named Daphne in accounts and she's just lovely. And I just worked on this payment plan and... Uh, so you just checked your bank account one day and there was 15 Gs in there instead of 1,500. Yeah. That's, yep. that's a pretty good day. Mm. Well, this year's Rich List, it might be the most dynamic ever because the Olympics added a whole new element. And then on top of that, there was COVID's influence. How exactly did COVID affect salaries and, and how long will these changes continue to factor into surface salaries? So the COVID, the impact of COVID is probably the biggest thing to happen to surf contracts in the past 20 years. So I had a phone call with the guys from Wasserman, a big talent agency in the US yesterday. And they were talking about all the different sort of verticals what they represent talent in. So fitness, mountain biking, cycling, skateboarding, the whole kind of gamut. And the, the, the number one sport to get the shit kicked out of it was surfing in terms of the deals. And those other sports, those deals weren't adjusted. So there's two reasons for that, I think. I think surfing had been, I think there's a rationalization. I think surfing salaries had gotten too large. I think when Nike came in, it was like peak surf industry. They came in, Billabong were pumping, Quicksilver were pumping, Rip Curl doing really well. And then we had Nike come in and just overinflate. And I think the when COVID hit, it was just cloud covered. It sort of rationalized these salaries and then bring them back down to a level that was more in line with the business, the size of the business that they had. So, and there was a, there's so many layers to it. Like it's um, Quicksilver and Billabong are owned by the same company now. So those were two, those, those two businesses used to duel and try to put, they push up salaries. Rip Curl are quite happy with their team and they sort of operate in their own space really. So there was no real reason, there's no reason for salaries to get pushed up to where they were. So as it turns out, there have been 12 million dollar deals in history and there's only two million dollar deals in apparel left right now. I loved your, your analogy in this story about Billabong and Quicksilver who are under the one umbrella now but previously would compete for contracts and now your analogy was it's like, it's like a husband and wife bidding against each other at an auction, it just, it just wouldn't happen. You know, like that, that competition is just completely gone. Yeah, so if Billabong Quicksilver, they want, if they want a guy, they're just going to talk to the other one and say, hey, this guy's ours, we're going to just pay X. And they're like, yeah, cool. This one's, this one's going to be, we want this guy, we're going to pay Y. And they're not going to get in that silly bidding war that they once would have. So other action sports didn't take a hit? 
I just think that those other businesses flourished immediately. And I think most of those high paid surfers were incentivized by the being on the world tour, whereas those other brand, those other disciplines were not. And then so it was so much of it was performance based. And then there was that force majeure clause, which is the act of God clause, uh, which, do you know what that is? Yeah. So that essentially says that if something completely left field, unforeseen happens like a COVID, that they, uh, they have the right to not honor a contract. Exactly. And then they can go renegotiate that contract. And yeah, that's what they did pretty much across the board. Every single business took their salaries down. Most of them took them 50% sometimes. Some of them wiped them 70% off for a while. Some of them put them on hold for a while and they were frozen. But there were two brands who didn't adjust contracts. Who mm. were they, Danny? That was Rip Curl and Vance. Yep. Yeah, and I know I heard a little behind the scenes around the free scrubber film that starred... Tom Curran, and during that film, he's not really towing the company line. He's, not, he's talking about the search and kind of dismissive of it. And it's engaging because most people would never do that to the company's number one marketing strategy. But <laughs> I found out a little later that the reason he was doing that is because that was right in the middle of COVID for the short time that Ripkel did put a pause on their contract. So he was a little bit unsure what was going to happen as we all were at that point. So that was why he wasn't particularly uh, <laughs> sounding like a, the good team rider that he might in, in, during other periods. But obviously Ripkel turned that around pretty quick. I think it was only a couple of months and then they started, uh, they paid full salary again, didn't they? Yeah, they went back to full salary. There was no renegotiations at all. Uh, I think they had a reduction in salary in line with their most senior staff as well internally. Yeah, right. So they all took a hit together. So the surfers, the, the surf companies did this. It almost, they felt like dominoes and, and it became safe to do so because they knew every other company was doing it. But then they didn't quite have the downturn in sales that they were, were counting on and that they rationalized these cuts with. So like, do you think surfers are going to be disenchanted or, or, or less likely to want to continue on with their sponsor obligations like they would normally when, they're, when their paychecks is fat and they're happy? Are you going to go sit on the outside and say, oh, I'm pissed off, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z? Or is the other side of it, are you going to go, shit, it's a buyer's market. These brands have pretty much, they can get anyone at the moment. And do you really play by the rules? Like it's a dangerous play to be disengaged, I think. There is one new brand that has entered the surf space, a sustainable shoe brand by the name Carry Uma. And their marketing and brand identity extends like way beyond just being pigeonholed in, in surf. And they're, and they're not really trying to appeal to surfers in the, in the way a, company, a surf company typically would. So why are surfers valuable to Kariuma? I think they've found the modern pro surfer. So I think when you look at their team, it's Italo, Kai Lenny, Alana Blanchard, Jack Freestone, Jamie O'Brien. So it's pretty obvious what strategy they're going with. They want the YouTube guys. They want the guys with the big social following. So yeah, they sponsor two guys in the list. So they've got Italo and Kai. And there's also another common thread about the rich list this year. To make the rich list, you pretty much need an energy drink because it's non-competing. They pay well. They were another brand like Monster, Red Bull. All of those brands didn't adjust salaries at all. They didn't touch them. They actually had... 
they did better out of the pandemic in terms of sales. Yeah, why is that? People had less to do. Why were they drinking more energy drinks? I think Red Bull did 1.3 million cans in North America alone uh, during the pandemic. So I guess coffee shops are closed. Ah, yeah, people needed a hit. And people are sitting at home, Zoom fatigue. Like, yeah. Why not? Fair watching, enough. Watching Jamie O'Brien just drop, just drop those things. <laughs> 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 uh, your story lists the highest paid male surfers from 11th all the way up to number one. And we're not going to break down all the numbers now, but people can view the stories as they drop on Stab in the, in the coming days. And it also breaks down the amount that surfers earn for each of their contracts. And one of the astonishing things about the, is that the highest paid person on the Billabong roster is not Italo. Who is it and how is a surfer's value calculated if the world champ isn't, isn't the highest paid member? There's some fascinating insight around this one. So just to be clear, when you win a world title, you get a world title bonus that amortizes that following year. So Islo won the world title in 2019. And when the tour, if it had have started typically, started in February or March, he would have been paid that, that bonus would have been paid over the next 12 months. Because the tour didn't start, he didn't get that, world title bonus didn't start until December when the Pipe Masters were on. So the way it works is, the way we do this, is we only focus on the base salaries as opposed to the bonus from the previous year's performance. So big, the big contracts with like, especially energy drinks, you can pretty much get your salary repeated. Like you can double your salary with performance. So you can get matched for contest wins. I think you get matched the prize money and then top 10, top five, and then it sort of ratchets up from there. So the way this thing works when we calculate it, our, when we're doing this, when we're putting together these numbers is we just go based on this, on the, we, we base it on the base salary and not with the previous year's bonuses. So this year, Italo earns more than Griffin, but Griffin is on a marginally higher base because of where he's situated. So the most valuable market, the largest market is North America. And so Griffin is that surfer in that space. He's the kind of, he's the marquee athlete they call him. And then there's the, how it works in Brazil is complex. So the way it works is that they've, they've got a big import duty to, to bring stock there. And then the Brazilian Real, is it? Do you know how to pronounce it? No, but that sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's really weak against the US dollar. So even really good, commercial success there, you turn it back into American dollars, it's sort of diluted and uh, yeah, so the Americans still get paid more. Yeah, so despite despite the amount of surf fanatics in Brazil, the, the American market still worth so much more. It's just, it just makes so much more sense. And I know your, your story touches on how Felipe Toledo was encouraged to, to move there and he currently has the third highest contract for, in terms of uh, apparel brands, which is, uh, which is interesting. That's a really interesting part because, yeah, he, because Hurley really wanted him to move to California, so he moved to San Clemente. He went there, his parents live in a house there with his siblings. He bought another house in San Clemente and he essentially became American on paper. So most energy drink deals, they pay you in your local denomination, your lo local currency, but he now is paid like an American. And the other really cool thing that happened to Felipe is when Blue Star bought Hurley, 
they came and just, you remember, they just, they pretty much culled every contract bar two. The most publicized holds were Kai Lenny and Cole Smith. Uh, Carissa got dropped, you know, Kolohe got dropped, Julian got dropped. And then the, a lot of these guys had to go and renegotiate. Philippe did really well on his renegotiation because I guess he was representing Brazil. These people, the new owners saw value in that. And then so they renegotiated that, that deal. And then when COVID struck and everyone went and reduced the deals because of the pandemic, they, their deal was watertight. It couldn't be changed. And so he had this sort of elevated contract. So uh, that left him in a pretty good place, which is I think that deal is around 600K a year. So he put, yeah, that puts him third on the list. Mm. And Julian's another interesting factor with the whole Blue Star Alliance uh, dilemma because they actually cancelled his contract. I actually showed up at Julian's, uh, a place he was staying on uh, up at Tweed when that event was on to do an interview and he'd just gotten the news and he was still ripping the, the Hurley stickers off his board before we did the interview. And he was clearly he was clearly agitated, annoyed, and that one ended up in in court. And I think we've we've touched on that story on stab. But one of the interesting things about Julian that came up in the story is that contracts are often based on potential rather than results, especially for young surfers like a Griffin. And that's potentially why he he earns more than Italo. It's why it's why Kolohe was able to secure such huge contracts uh, in his youth. You have to remember that when Kolohe did his 10-year deal with Nike, he was more sought after than John John. John John hadn't popped yet. And so you're just, you're paying forward for this success you're hoping will happen. And your incentives are based on that success, but yeah, it is, it's a big risk. Like Italo hasn't won, uh, Italo's like won however many events, Griff hasn't won one yet, but there is that assumption that that success will happen. like. Did Nike think over the next nine years after they signed that 17-year-old that Kolohe wouldn't have end? Not a chance in hell. They wouldn't have gone so hard at him, but just it just that's the way it, that's the way it turned out. Yeah. And then there's another thing when you pay for potential and that doesn't necessarily work out. Julian Wilson was was constantly being cited as someone who would win a world title and that hasn't happened yet. He's currently down the rankings and he doesn't have a major apparel brand attached to his um, to his name at the moment and now he's renegotiating but he's a, he's in a very different period of his life how do you think julian's markability has shifted from from when he was negotiating as a teenager so he was or he was one of those 12 surfers of all time that had the million dollar deal so he was in that list and then when he got dropped by hurley i know he's shopping around at 500k that sort of zone and then one of the other managers uh, said, look, he's, in reality, he's a 200K surfer now. And I don't know whether he could rationalize that in his head. And I know he's been approached by Vistler and a few brands like that, but I don't know whether he'd actually even bother because he's been in that, like, that exclusive club for so long. But it does bring up a, big, a good point. When these, when, you, when these young surfers sign to these brands, it's this feel-good moment, welcome to the family, it's this, um, well, we're all in this together, but it's never a family. It never has been and never will be. Like it's um, your family on the way in and then you're, it's just business on the way out. And I don't, you've got to be really careful. These, the young servants have to be careful that they can wear as many Ohana t-shirts as they like with a little Hurley H built into it. Like at a point, you're just a, you're a name on a spreadsheet and if you're not delivering value, you'll be out the door. And 
it's always been that way and will always be that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like, I think it's really important for young surfers if they're going to, they go and surf with these bigger brands and they, they realize that the moment they stop working is the moment they'll stop being paid and they need to work every single day and like really grind it out and provide value because you know how often we've, we've read it over the years, people get pissed off. This guy's not getting this. Clay Marzo's not getting earning this. People get so angry about it. But like it's just a business. Like you, you can't get angry that they, they hired a marketing director over that marketing director or a CEO, CEO over that one. It's their business. They can do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. And those guys just have to make sure they do a good deal when they go in. And I truly believe all these new little startup brands, I think that these servers, they're not going to be able to afford to pay the market rate. I think these servers should try to get points in the company, get equity in there and grow with that brand in that way. Because it's easy to say you think you're going to get better. When you're 25, you can think you're going to keep earning more. It's keeping getting better and better. But at 35, you're not as valuable or at 25. And by 45, you just your value is really diminished. And so... You take the risk, you go with a small brand, the, the brand blows up, you both took a risk, no hard feelings. But if that brand takes off, you're going to be part of the reason that brand takes off and it's going to take off without you. And so I think it's super important. I think it's the, the precedent is being set a lot recently. So you've got, say, Viore has, Rob Machado has equity in it. Modem, I think, have a lot of their team riders with equity, Taj Burrow, Craig Anderson. Uh, Nate Tyler, Chipper Wilson, Dion Agius, they're all in with Octopus. Uh, Josh Kerr is a part of Album Surfboards. Channel Islands has a lot of their team runners with ownership within there. Mick Fenning's now part of Creatures of Leisure. I think this is a really good precedent for these guys. Yeah, and it's a mutual benefit as well because if Dane had an interest in Quicksilver, if Craig had an interest in Quicksilver, it, it's hard to imagine that they would have left. And you look at all the biggest stars, you, you, we've talked about it a lot, Kelly, John, John, they've all left and gone and started their own thing. So it, it, it is of mutual benefit to the surfers and the companies to, for, to work out those, those type of um, equity deals. Yes and no. In Quicksilver's defense, you don't have to pay someone 3.2 million bucks a year and give them equity. Three point two is just fine, <laughs> whatever the number is. Well, yeah, but I mean, they could have paid him less and given him equity. There you go. Well, wow, it's amazing. Uh, those numbers are, uh, are crazy. But they need to be like these guys. They have this limited time. They have to set themselves up. Like they have to get financial freedom for themselves and their families. They have a limited time to do it because you really don't want to see these extraordinary talents have this little time in the limelight and then have to end up on the tools or end up with mental health issues or depression because it's so often linked to your financial state. So I'm a believer that the salaries they get, they, they deserve. Yeah, another thing, another great part of your article is when you quoted Neil Ridgway and, and the reason that Rip Curl didn't renegotiate their contracts because he decided that the working relationships and the deals he had in place with these surfers was quite fair. And Mick Fanning retired in March 2018, yet he's still way up the list. He's second. So how has Mick managed that? Work pretty much. Like you, you know what it's like. You want to get him on the podcast, you text him, you call him, he just shows up ready. We get him for stab in the dark. We're, going, we're on our way to Mexico. He says, hey, it's going to be dead flat. I saw a typhoon in Japan. I texted this guy I know. He can pick us up from the airport. We've got us a place to stay. Hey, uh, 
Let me know. I'm, I'm going to find out some more details. You reckon we can get a local shaper in? Workers, they're just endurance over talent. Like he just is, he's relentless. And I've worked with a lot of pro surfers for a very long time and enough, no one gets near Mick right. in terms of work ethic. And I'm sure just working with a little media place, like a little media business like ours, he's like that with all of his sponsors. I mean, he, just, he just grinds. He's me earning really big money for the next 15 years. The same way that Tony Hawk just doesn't, he's just always around. Or like Tony Hawk at 51 signed a Vans deal last year. And Mick will be doing those same kind of things. Yeah, it, there's people that just are so embedded in culture that they are valuable beyond their, their surfing ability. I think people like Aussie Wright uh, have that same longevity because, I mean, he contributes to Volcom in so many ways. He designs product that flies off the shelves. He's, he's a whole generation's hero. That he's, he'll always be quoted by that Noah Dean, Creed McTaggart, Sean Manners generation as their, as, as their hero and... And he's just relentless in evolution. He has just had these chapters. He has the bunny girl chapter. He just has all these little chapters and he doesn't ever just sit back. And you're working with him on a project at the moment. I guarantee you he just shows up every day ready to work. And that's, there's a clear difference in our world. You see it all the time. Like you can just see the difference in, you can see in a young guy how, their career's gonna, how long their career is going to last for in the way they show up. And I think, uh, I think it's a really important part of the longevity of these guys. So there's, there's currently only $2 million deals in surfing and yet surfing is more popular than ever. So where did all the million dollar deals go and are they going to come back anytime soon? They're not. I don't think they're going to come back. I just, the only reason they come back is because you're forced there to grab that talent. And Quicksilver and Billabong, they can't force a salary up there because the auction, the, the wife and husband and wife at the auction uh, analogy. And then you've got, if there was a new emerging brand, if like an Adidas or someone came in or Nike came back in, then that would force that up. I just don't see anything that's going to force it there. I don't know whether the Olympics will change that, whether someone becomes a gold medalist and you get a kick on the backside of that because you're always a gold medalist. But... I don't see it happening for some time and the people I've spoken to don't think it'll happen for some time either. Why did Nike abandon surfing? They, they made such a huge inroads into skating and in the skate culture for a long time there was an argument core versus corporate and that war is over and it's pretty easy to see who's won. It's the, it's the companies like Nike, Adidas, Cons and Vans with seemingly bottomless marketing budgets that were able to to come in and just and steal skaters from these skater-owned companies, um, not necessarily the decks, but the shoe brands like Lakai that that had really impressive rosters. Why is why why hasn't that happened in surfing, or why did Nike come and then leave? It always seems strange to me that Nike came in and they're all about that the holy grail is the board short, right? You get the board short right, you win the game. And so they came in and they had their performance board short. And then they earned Hurley and Hurley was all about the performance board short. So it did feel like they were just cannibalizing that market. So the reason they didn't hang around, I think they left too early. I think they needed to give it sort of four, five, six years and not two years or 36 months or whatever it was. So it did make sense for them to leave as a po- and then just put that energy into Hurley. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think it'll be a long time until they come back. How have the servers reacted to these stories when they've been published in the past? It's, it's their laundry just being aired. 
most guys know it's coming because I've asked them, hey, these salaries, correct? But it hasn't always been that way. Andy Irons was furious because Joel and Taj earned more than him. He lost it at me, which is interesting, which is uh, there's two, two sides of Andy. You get the really happy side or you just get the furious side. Is that scary? Or yeah. was it scary? Yeah, it was. It was thoroughly unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other side, he's so warm. Yeah, well, he was particularly competitive with Taj as we saw in Andy Irons and the Radicals. Why was Taj earning more money than him at that time? Was this pre-world title? Yeah, this is this is before Taj's world titles. No, no, <laughs> it was this pre Andy world titles. Uh yeah. What would it have been? Two thousand. Oh, I think it was all in amongst that. I think Taj was the lucky recipient of Billabong and Quicksilver going head to head, trying to get him. Like it's just one of those things. Like you, you, the market forces pushed that price up. Pretty sure that's what how it went for that those big contracts, those those few years, those three really big years for him. Mm. It's hard to imagine. Taj with a Quicksilver sticker on his board. But I guess the other factor, Andy might have been agitated, but in terms of the greater good, you doing this research and making this information public actually does benefit the surfers more than they may realise because having contracts out in the open gives them way more bargaining ability when that knowledge is out there. Yes and no. So this, here's what one of the managers said to me. He goes, you're just fucking it for everyone here this year. And I was like, why? What do you mean? And he goes, well, John John used to be on 4.2. I've got a lesser talent that I can sell him at 1.5. But the moment you go and say the best surfer in the world, John John Florence's, he, his major deal is 500K, then that's the ceiling. And so the rest of us have to scale accordingly. And so that made a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes sense in a way. But John John's deal isn't 500. It's 500 and equity of his own company. So... I don't know if it's as simple as, as the best surfer in the world being only paid 500. Yeah, well, another manager said, hey, can you just go, can you just go juice all the numbers and make <laughs> our life so much easier? <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Is there anything you want us to touch on that we didn't that was interesting? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few points. So this doesn't include capital gains or investments. So people mm-hmm. have bought and sold houses, sold businesses. Bolter was sold in that period. So Mick, Joel... B, that'll be in this, they would be way all in this list if it were, if it weren't just for, this is just strictly sponsorships. Led Hamilton would be right up the top because of his Led Superfood IPO. Ellie Jean Coffee would be in there, but that's not what this list is. This is just salaries. And the other part that we haven't discussed is Kelly Slater is in this list who absolutely would be. And the reason being is we have no line of sight of his deals. So the way he does his deals is he sort of sets up an investment fund, so to speak. So you buy a stake in his prop in his, in his assets. Hmm. Uh, and I vaguely know how that works, but I don't feel comfortable enough sort of putting pen to paper on that. I don't. It's not concrete enough for me to report on. That's interesting. I know I, I spent a little time at the marketing department of FCS for a while and... Richie Lovett was about to go meet up with Kelly or he did go meet up with Kelly to discuss his deal because he was... Kelly hasn't traditionally moved fashion or garments in a huge way, but anything that's surf hardware related has flown off the shelf if it's got Kelly Slater's name on it. So he was really pivotal pivotal to FCS's success and, and aligning with him as the best surfer ever was, was something they were really interested in. So Richie went and sat down with Kelly and tried to, they just wanted to be able to use him more. He was using the product 
And the first thing Kelly said to Rich is, I have no idea what I get paid. So, and which just which made it impossible for Rich to to, to uh, even really try and negotiate with him. Like, yeah, what, what, what's a carrot look like? Yeah, he just he had no idea. And then, interestingly enough, Kelly left his deal with FCS and and continued to use their product. So he became their cheapest team writer, even though they couldn't use him in marketing, um, which was yeah, it's a strange one. But, but Kelly always the anomaly. And back to your point, I know it out of nine. You can have a pair of board shorts that is a different colorway to the one that Kelly's wearing and it won't sell. But if you have the photo of Kelly in it, it sells. Really? Yeah. So like you might have a different skew and it's like a, a blue and gray, but he's in, he's in the olive and gray and they're the ones that sell. And so they're all merchandised on the site side by side, but it's the ones he's in that, that move. So he does sell product now. Ah. But to a, probably a non-surf audience? That's a can of worms, Daniel. Yes, mm. it certainly is. A lot of pontification. Yeah. Anything else, Sam? Yes. I want you to tell me the 12 surfs in history who have had million-dollar deals. Oh, that is so good. The, uh, well, well, let's start with Tom Carroll because that was the famous and first. Correct. Kelly Slater. Correct. Is the next obvious. Um, Andy Irons, Bruce Irons, Taj Barrow, Dane Reynolds. John John Florence, Mick Fanning, Gabriel Medina. How many? What, how many have I got left? Well, Bruce isn't in there. He's Br- not. Bruce was in terms of equity in Vulcan, but not the actual. Didn't get a salary. Yeah, not of the not the million dollar salary. How many? How many are there left to tick off this list? Is Carissa on a million dollars? No. Steph. Yes. I think I might have to tap out here. I don't know if I... So, sorry, I was misleading. So, it's they're in this, in the 2000s. So, there's Tom Carroll in 1988. Okay. the 2000s, yeah, there's a dozen. So, Kelly, Taj, Andy, Mick, Joel, Dane, Gabe, Geordie, Steph, Kolohe, Julian, John. Ah, oh, Geordie. Did I say John? That was such an obvious one. You said John, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, a, what a, an amazing list that will live on forever and never, never be added to. Maybe, or it might be some time. And then who do you think the most undervalued surfer in the world is? Uh, to, well, to me, I, I can look at that from two different angles. There's, I think of guys like Sean Manners uh, being undervalued in a sense, simply because I don't know what he ended up when he just shifted to, to Glow, but I know that prior to that, he was, he was struggling to get by and he was really candid about that when I interviewed him on the podcast. And I think people like that, that are really interesting characters that can talk, that are hyper creative and then really inspiring surfers are an amazing long-term plays for brands because they're culturally relevant, they influence culture. And so I think, I think he is, is, but is... What about like... Uh Servers that aren't on the Rage team because I know you love Rage so much. <laughs> Beyond the Rage team. I love Rage. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think, I, think, I think those guys fit into a mold that, I mean, we mentioned Aussie before and I feel like Aussie is, is probably the spearhead of that mold of people that are long-term in, within the core. But my biggest surprise and someone I, I don't know if he's undervalued, but it was at least a shock to me that his valuation wasn't higher was Kai Lenny. I think he comes in at 10th on the list and 
he seems to be custom built, almost 3D printed a, a version <laughs> of a corporate surfer. And given the, the, his ability to tap a, a bigger non-surf audience because of his big wave antics, his, his multidisciplinary um, skills in terms of oiling, supping, uh, all the weird shit that he does and just how broad his appeal is and, and how suited he's he Zuck is. He's approved. Yeah, he's Zuck <laughs> fucking certified. He's things like that. And, and, and given how well-spoken and safe he is, for corporates to to attach their brand to, I just I thought he would have more value than say a Felipe Toledo or someone who's only known by surfers and 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 has the world to a as as the as the backbone of their interest. Yeah, he's going to have twenty years of big contracts, and I think he's going to keep moving up the list because everything you say is true. He's just. He just fits that squeaky clean image. You've seen his garage. <laughs> yeah. You've spoken about his garage <laughs> a lot. I'm fascinated by his garage. Yeah, but, but to me, like, why is he? Why is he not worth more money now? I just think it's the same thing about market forces. You just got no one to fo- to push it up. Mm. Like, I think it would be really easy to get in a bidding war. Ripcoil aren't going to take him on. They've got they've got Gabe and Mick. Uh, Billabong. It doesn't really suit their path at the moment. Quicksilver the same. So it's really hurly and then like a Nike come along, would want, you'd think they'd want to get their hands on someone like Kai, but there's no one else to really force it up. Who, who is that? I think to me, I was surprised that his Red Bull contract wasn't high. His tag, Hewer, how do you pronounce that watch brand? He's, I he, think people, th- those deals, the, what I learned during this process, those deals are smaller because people are really into the product and the prestige that comes along with being a part of that team. Mm. Yeah, so they, they, they don't have to pay as much to get the surfers interested and there's obviously not the competition there. Who do you think is the most undervalued surfer? Who do I think the most undervalued surfer? These guys, are, the sponsorships only exist for people to sell product, right? And I still think the, if your product aligns with what he does, that no one can get near Jamie O'Brien. You see those, like, those turtle suits that come out with Buell and they're just sold out instantly and... He knows how to sell product. He knows how to play the game. So I think, I know it'd be like, well, how's he underrated? But I, I genuinely think he he's, is. You think he's underutilized by brands? He's got what everyone wants. He has an audience, they're captive. He validates a brand and he's just, he, he sells product. Yeah, he seemed like an odd fit to me in many ways for Karyuma, that new shoe, the ethical shoe brand that you mentioned because Jamie's identity and, and, and what he's known for is being fairly brash and... And I don't know how would you describe him. He's he's he doesn't he doesn't necessarily align with the values of a sustainable shoe company and all the eco-friendly, I don't know, hygiene-related looking images. What do you think they see when they look at Jamie, other than his audience? I just think they see the audience. I see. I just think they have an influencer model. They got Alana, Alana Blanchard, Kai Lenny, Italo. It just makes perfect sense. Like those are other, yeah, they don't, he doesn't align with the sustainability thing. Uh, but I just think he'll, he'll sell shoes for them. Yeah. How far off the rich list is Jamie O'Brien? Well, his is difficult because so much of his income comes from his sales. So it's not sponsorship. So his mm. product that he sells is Stay Psyched, does really, really well. I think he told us on that other, the other podcast we did, he does 30K a month. 
on there. And that was some time ago and his audience has only grown since then. So there's a 360 base. The bottom end of the rich list was about 600. So he's absolutely in there with his Red Bull deals and his catch deal and Buell deals. So, but you just don't have line of sight on that stuff. He's not going to tell us. Yeah. And this, this thing is really about sponsorship. Otherwise, Ellie Jean Coffee would be in with her sales from her OnlyFans equivalent that she has built. Mm, or anyone that surfed once would, we'd have to consider because she's not exactly a pro surfer at this point. Not so much, no. I guess the last question I would have is, is there anyone that surprised you? you you're there doing the research. Is there anyone that you're like, oh, this person's value is a lot higher than I would have anticipated? I think Philippe got lucky on his contract with Hurley. I think, I think Philippe got really, really lucky. I think anyone with an energy drink deal was really, really lucky. There's a, there's a reason that the two, the two best things you could have done would be right for Rip Curl or, and have an energy drink. I think if you want to really hit that high threshold of owners, you need a, that energy drink. There's only one surfer in the list that doesn't have one. Who's that, Denny? I don't know. Is it obvious? Why are you looking at me like it's so obvious? I, <laughs> I like watching you think. <laughs> <laughs> Who is it? I can't think. John. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. He had one. He, he, was, he had a brief period with Monster. Yes. But that doesn't really align with the John John brand, especially once he, when he's creating an, an ethical uh, clothing company. Yeah. So that was the biggest takeaway. And then one of the other things is that Red Bull really try to get on someone early and ride their success up with them and that's not the case with Idolo. And yeah, he was – what's interesting about Idolo, he's the, he's the only billabong surfer on the Red Bull team since Andy Irons. Is there, is there a reason for that? I think they were divergent in their paths following that like billabong's brand went in a different direction and yeah, I don't know the rationale. That's interesting. It's crazy how many stickers are on the bottom of Italo's and Gabby's boards like it, to a point where you have to wonder if it's affecting the weight of the board. And I know they probably, they're probably fine with a little bit of weight in their boards but it, it, doesn't, look to, it doesn't look to impact it too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anecdotally at least. <laughs> yeah, they still fly, that's for sure. But yeah, they, those guys are... I think they're just grown up in a different way. They're not trying to be cool. They want checks. They want checks. They want checks. Thank you, Sam. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review wherever you listen to this. And if you do, please take a screenshot and email it to me at danny at stabmag.com. We're giving away Stab Premium memberships to the best reviews. So thank you and see you next week. I guess I was like 21, 22. Yeah, I tried to go buy a house uh, with my then fiance and uh, found out I was broke. And I didn't take, I didn't handle my finances at all. My mom just kind of took care of it for me. And, um, and uh, so it was a real kind of uh, quick wake up lesson in, in learning about your money and, and taking care of what you have and planning for the future.